The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, my not usual co-host, but sometimes co-host, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Great to be here this morning. It's great to be here on a Monday morning. Not always the day we do it, but we had our opportunity to have our guest in the studio with us. Uh, Flew in from California specifically to do the show here. That's how big the Proceedings Podcast is. But we have Colonel John Sotos. He's a cardiologist who is in the California Air National Guard. He holds a U.S. Air Force Chief Flight Surgeon rating. As an aviator, we love our flight surgeons. You're also a member of the U.S. Air Force Combat Rescue Service and a veteran. Uh, you did two volunteer special ops deployments, so we'd need to talk to you about that. And you run a web, web page at www.sotos.com, and that's S-O-T-O-S. So, John, welcome to the studio here in Studio C of our complex here. This is actually the best studio, also known as my office, but welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And Studio C means Carol. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He's figuring it out. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's why he's a cardiologist. <laughs> yes, he's smart. Okay. Before we get into the article, which was a very popular article in our June issue uh, titled, Physical Fitness Programs Don't Fit Today's Fight, uh, just for the audience, um, your experience um, you know, I can remember one of the first uh, physical fitness tests I took um, just about 30 years ago, I mean, over 30 years ago, in the Philippines. And, you know, sailors were putting out cigarettes 30 seconds before their, the run started, and there was a cooler beer at the finish line. So we've come, we've come quite away from, uh, from that. And, uh, but I think I've always wondered, as we seem to tinker with or change the physical fitness test every few years, so... Uh, the wisdom, uh, physical fitness policy wisdom seems to pass away after a few years, and then we do something new. Um, how does the Department of Defense determine physical fitness standards? Is it done by BUMED? Is it done based on AMA stand? I mean, how is it done? Well, they the the services do it independently, from what I can tell, and it's not based on any civilian standard that I know of. You mentioned the American Medical Association. And uh, as you've noted, the standards change frequently. And when you see that, you have to ask, well, there seems to be a lot of instability here in what we're measuring, what we're defining. And that, I think, is a clue that what they're trying to measure is really not very well defined because the definition migrates so often. So I can't speak to what happens in the halls of the Pentagon or uh, the, the, the service headquarters. I don't think um, it's so much the medical people that drive it. Uh, in the Air Force, we have exercise physiologists, which we often attach to uh, aviation training uh, active duty sites. We don't have any in the Guard. And I think, um, I'm speculating here now, I think those people have a lot to say about what fitness is. To me, the signature 
thesis paragraph was on page 49, which where you said, the Navy has made several decisions that seem to indicate it regards the odds of calamity at sea so low that damage control compromises are tolerable. First, it is crewing Zumwalt-class ships with a complement of just 147, raising concerns about damage control effectiveness. Second, on board all ships, physical re- fitness requirements vary by age and sex, rather than being an absolute standard that derives, say, from the muscular effort required to shore up a hold hull. Third, the Navy permits sailors who carry HIV and other blood-borne viruses to serve at sea in large ships, apparently confident that the risk of briskly bleeding combat wounds is low enough not to endanger other sailors. Fourth, 7,700 at-sea positions in the Navy's 280 ships will be unfilled in 2019. Yet the Navy stands ready to freeze the career of a sailor who can only do 41 push-ups as opposed to 42 in two minutes. That I thought that just absolutely nails it in terms of the, the framing of it. Now, before we get into the overall issues there, is that true? You, you can serve if you are HIV positive? You can serve at sea? In selected ships. Uh, the Navy has, I guess, a definition of large ships, and those are the ships on which uh, those sailors are So like an serve. aircraft carrier? Or uh, some of the big uh, supply ships. I, I don't know. You'll have to tell yeah. me. But okay. I, uh, With that as the sort of setup, Let's talk about what, what you mentioned in your article. So as Bill just said, we're, we're wondering where do these rules come from? Where are the minimums? Because it would seem to change, you know, at random when we were, when we we're in, you know, at sea or in our commands. Suddenly it's like, okay, now they're doing this. And the, the midshipman interns we have in the office right now or in the, in, with us right now are saying that they're going from crunches to planks going forward. Another who said and What's the, you know, the rationale behind that sort of thing? So let's talk about the, the points you make. So like I said, you, you just mentioned that the Navy uh, seems to not care about even the most basic things like damage control. We just had one of our contributors on his own blog um, talk about this. Uh, um, what's the word I'm searching for here? Not equality, diversity. but diversity, diversity. So under the auspices of, of diversity, sometimes things like what you say here, what is the strength required to open a hatch or lock down a hatch, right? Is that factored into the physical fitness requirements, right? That's a pretty basic question. And that's not a, a political question. It's not a sexist question. It's not misogynistic to ask that question. Uh, you rightly point out that that doesn't seem to be baked into the equation here. There are movements to take that into account. So the Marines are moving toward fitness standards that are essentially physiologically blind. It's it's all about Newton's laws. Can you make this amount of mass move or can you move this fast? And just since I drafted the article and submitted it, um, the Air Force has talked about uh, the same sort of thing, um, and I believe the Navy also has started to talk about moving toward um, standards that are not uh, adjusted by sex. I can tell you, though, since you know, in, in my uh, 28-year active duty career, uh, not once did anyone say, we do this every six months because you need to be able to shut a hatch in, in, in damage control or plug a hole. It was more about, um, hey, it's just better to have a fit force. It's better to have um, a fit workforce. Uh, fit sailors, you know, um, have fewer medical problems. Fit sailors f- m- uh, miss less time at work. 
Uh, they're happier. There's a lot of evidence that um, you know, be, being fit and getting sleep, which you address very well in your article, sleep, which we can talk about later. Um, that uh, and that's the purpose of it. It wasn't as much a combat, you know, enabler type of uh, at least like a specific sk- skill yes, set right. associated with either G tolerance or getting over an obstacle or whatever. Right. It's just sort of this right. general, like Bill is saying, this overarching idea that fitness equals wellness. But when you say fit to a cardiologist, we tend to think of the world a little differently. I can't tell if either of you are fit because I want to get a blood pressure machine out and see what your blood pressure is. To me, that's the most important number in medical. It's the second most important number in in fitness. The first number is the number of cigarettes you smoke. And the second number is your blood pressure. So when people talk about um, long-term health, the, the benefits of uh, getting uh, service members into the habit of having um, uh, fitness activities and, and the long-term health benefits, to me, that's secondary to these other factors, the cigarettes, the blood pressure. And so uh, I, I think that, um, you know, you used the word, uh, you, you mentioned uh, about whether it's con- contributory to the mission, certain mission elements. And in the medical world, we do that. We we, we look at the, the job, the military job that somebody's going to do, and we work backwards and we figure out what the physical requirements are for that. It might be visual acuity. It might be um, hearing, that sort of thing. And as you say, I, I don't think that's happening uh, with the physical fitness uh, standards that we see today. You have a great paragraph here on page 50 where you say, once the odds of combat sword fighting neared zero, the Navy abandoned sword training keeping those weapons only as ornaments for uniforms. More recently, leaders have recognized probabilistic trade-offs between muscle and intellect in a resource-constrained environment. Admiral James Stavridis, who's the chairman of our board, suggested, quote, comparatively low physical fitness standards, end quote, are appropriate for a force of military cyber professionals. And Admiral James Winnefeld, another guy on our board, advised young officers to, quote, spend an extra hour a day when all of the others around you are going to the gym, comma, goofing off, comma, or hanging around the ready room to teach yourself something about your profession, whether it's actually about your airplane or your ship or your submarine or whether it's reading a book, end quote. So this this feeds into the old guy logic that everything's everybody's getting soft right <laughs> uh, i mean this and, you mean and this mentally soft or physically no, soft no physically soft that we have a bunch of you know fat bodies and nobody's qualified to be in the navy or marine corps these days because they all grew up playing video games and everybody's got type 2 diabetes and so forth and so on but you you as a cardiologist as you've just pointed out you believe, and I'm paraphrasing you, but these fitness standards were created by, let's just call it the workout mafia, where they're, they're endomorphs who are distance runners, who the only variable they care about is, is percentage body fat. And they, they say less is better. T- tell us a little more granularity about the folly of that. Yeah. So uh, specifically about uh, body fat, uh, that's, uh, that becomes an issue when you're talking about um, uh, stressful physiological situations. So in the article, I talk about uh, the lack of food. If you're going to try and reduce your body fat to a minimum, 
that's very that demands a lot of calories because you have to exercise a lot and to exercise a lot you have to bring in a lot of calories so you can exercise your muscles so when i deployed for instance on one of those deployments you know i was very fit at that time and i had to eat every 2 hours and that is not a recipe for success if something bad happens so we were in the combat rescue business and you know we had scenarios where we'd go in and we'd do things and and we would be out of touch for a while and i couldn't be in a position where i had to eat every 2 hours so for the first time in my life in my adult life i would go to the chow hall and eat the worst possible food with the most calories just to fill up the tank so i didn't have to eat so often and i thought that made me a better combat crewman so uh, what we see in the military today is uh, no real acknowledgement of that reality. That if you're going to, um, say, be taken prisoner or taken hostage, uh, you want a lot of energy in the tank, which is your body fat stores, and that is going to help you uh, endure and uh, do what you have to do while you're being held. Another real-world example that you give that resonates with me is here again on page 50. The Air Force paid with lives to rediscover this truth in the 1980s after a mysterious series of fatal F-15 and F-16 crashes involving pilots who were enthusiastic distance runners. Their cardiovascular systems, as a result of superb conditioning in Earth's 1G environment, had lost the reflexes to cope with the rapid-onset high-G environment of the cockpit. The resulting surfeit of G-induced loss of consciousness cases was stemmed in part by restricting the weekly distances fighter pilots could run. So that's counterintuitive, right? You're thinking the, the, the more I, I'm, in, I'm in shape, the better my 1G cardio fitness is. It must be also translatable to the 6G environment. And that turns out it is not true. So uh, again, just blind approaches to an absolute is is sort of tone deaf with respect to the various mission areas and so forth and so on. So in no case is what you're saying here is let's hazard our health with lack of exercise and poor diets. That's not your point. Right. Nature is more subtle than we think. And, you know, even in that example with the, the fighter crashes, you know, very smart people who are helping to build these airplanes and get the crewing ready for these airplanes uh, didn't think of this. And it, it took these unfortunate incidents before people started to realize, oh, we made some bad assumptions here. And we haven't gone out and given our air crew the right advice for how to conduct themselves physically. So, Because um, these guys could pass the PRT, like, oh, yeah. you know, uh, max it out. Right. Right? Right. But their combat readiness is terrible. Yeah. They were unsuited for the job they were doing. Right. You've said that the, the fix was, okay, you're going to have to limit the amount of distance running you do. Um, but ideally, they'd also modify the PRT, what they're graded on physically, to be more G-effective sorts of – and I'm thinking, obviously, things dealing with your abs and your, your uh, you know, lower extremities. There was a change in uh, what the uh, Air Force um, encouraged people to do. So there was an emphasis on weightlifting – and, uh, you know, there was a joke that we needed to hire only short people who smoked because they had uh, a higher blood pressure and they had a shorter distance, vertical distance from their heart to their brain. 
So smoking improves G tolerance? Well, you know, that was the joke. I would never okay. uh, go say that. Well, there are other ways we can help you uh, tolerate Gs. It's a lot safer and a yeah. lot more effective. But um, it it was a wake-up call uh, to the community. And the really only uh, absolute dictum that came down was the limit on the running. Everything else was just encouraged. Let's talk for a second about um, one of the most intriguing parts, I think, for me, the article, was about sleep and uh, cognitive health, if you, if I could say it that way. I think, um, happily, I think the Navy is finally getting, Navy, parts of the Navy, surface warfare and, and, and submarine warfare, is getting religion on sleep. It took a long time. I can tell you from my junior officer days, um, you know, getting sleep was something that soft people did. Um, so, um, and aviators and, and aviators. <laughs> yes, aviators and soft and soft people. Um, so, uh, it, I think the health benefits of, of, of a steady, um, amount of sleep, the same amount, uh, roughly a night and the same time of day is, is clear now, uh, science. And, um, but, the ability to focus and concentrate, I think, is a, an emerging or it's, it's becoming recognized as a, as a more difficult thing in today's digital age where young people have so many distractions. We all do, not just young people. I mean, and that the ability to concentrate. I've never been tested. I never was tested. And I don't think there's any test today for how long can you focus and concentrate um, um, at a time. And you talk about that a little bit in the article. So can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So we test how long people can run effectively, you know, by giving them distances to run. And um, but they're not that many. Uh, well, for many military occupations, you don't run for long distances. For many military occupations, you have to concentrate for long distances of time. And we don't have any way of testing whether people can do that other than their you know, job supervisor looking for uh, performance changes. And uh, it's not even, I don't think, true that, that we tell people that this is a skill they need to develop. So uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a very simple problem. I, I proposed uh, an outline for a test in the article. It would need a lot more refinement to that for that. But I think we do, uh, given the missions that are developing in, in the armed services, uh, I, I think we have to pay a lot more attention to uh, optimizing uh, the ability to perform those missions at a high level of cognitive demand over long periods of time because there are never enough people to do these jobs. And so we end up um, putting uh, people uh, to work for longer and longer periods of time. And I can remember reading articles in the proceedings uh, written by surface warfare ship captains that talk about the incredible demands uh, of wakefulness uh, that they experience. And, and, you know, the Navy is famous for the amount of coffee they drink. Uh, and, and um, you know, to me, that's, that's a bit of a red flag that you, you've, you've gone into the red zone in terms of what you're asking people to do. Well, sleep deprivation has always been a badge of honor on the bridge of, of Navy ships, right? Um, and so just like you were pointing out with the F-15 and F-16 mishaps, sometimes the, the lessons are written in blood. So too, in the summer of 2017, did we have two at-sea collisions that cost 17 sailors their lives. And some of the causal factors we were associated with sleep deprivation, particularly on the, in the, on on the, part of the COs of, of both of those ships. And COs notoriously don't get any sleep. They sleep in their chairs and 
remember the flight surgeon or the chief surgeon of one of the carriers I served on had the, the captain of the ship on this really sort of battle rhythm, you know, circadian rhythm thing um, that was experimental. But it, it was bizarre, and it just seemed to me to be sort of out there in terms of, you know, when he was going to sleep and when he was going to be awake and so forth and so on. So you, along with the question Bill asked, you're talking about what you talk about. We overlook the brain. Uh, and, and so what are the cognitive requ- requirements of any given warfare specialty and how do we measure that is part of what you're asking here. So if you were, let's just call you CNO for a day um, or, or Commandant of the Marine Corps or Coast Guard, um, how, how would you address this? How would you approach this? And I know you will say, well, it's a function of your warfare specialty, but Give me some examples of because the other thing we've had articles on our online version where uh, some have said that video games are are killing the force as well mm. in terms of not just the sleep deprivation when sailors are addicted. So the time they should be sleeping, they're playing video games in 96 man birthing, um, but also what it does to you cognitively um, in terms of not helping because people would say, oh, I'm sharper because I play video games. It's like, well, that's not really what happens. Uh, over time when you play video games. So what do you think? How, how could we address, let's start with the cognitive piece and then we'll we'll go into a more broader, you know, again, if you were CNO, you're the chairman of the Joint mm-hmm. Chiefs, how would you tackle what you bring up in your article in terms of specifics, things, specific things you would change? But let's start with the cognitive. Well, that, that job has already been tackled because in the aviation community, as you alluded, uh, there are strict rules about how much time you spend in your quarters, how much time you sleep before you go and fly the next day. And the reason that's there is because that is a cognitively demanding task, which requires protracted concentration. And, you know, it's it's the Navy and the Air Force, all the flying communities have realized that you've got to be sharp to do this job. So uh, the structure is already there. Uh, What's missing is the realization that that need to be mentally sharp carries through to other military specialties. When an aviator is not militarily sharp, uh, the evidence is there for all to see in the form of some terrible smoking hole. But when an intelligence analyst is not... Or even, you know, just bad landings, right? I mean, right. Every, on an aircraft carrier, every landing is graded by the LSO. So if you're trending, right, you immediately are, are attending to it, is mm-hmm. your point. Right. So it's explicit. It's measurable in some way. But for an intelligence analyst who is spending hours and hours at a desk looking at imagery or, um, or other types of intelligence, you know, that's much harder to see. You know, if, if you miss something, it's not clear to anybody that you've missed it. So you really have to set them up when they walk in the door and sit down in the morning and go to work. You have to hope that, they, that the brain... It, which is their chief tool for their job the rest of the day, is is working as best as it can. And um, if there's not that ethos out there, if there's not that sort of – in the aviation community, it's just accepted. that This is the way you do things. You get your eight hours. And if that's not built into these other communities, then that's going to lead to, I think, a, a suboptimal performance of yeah, military duties. Yeah, already has, right? And, and so, Bill, do, yeah. do we know or as a function – as a result of McCain and Fitzgerald, have we started like sleep logs or any? I mean, is there anything that has happened specifically around that? Well, they've um, gone to um, they've instituted fleet wide, and I'm 
pretty sure I got this right. Um, if I, if I don't, then I'll hear about it very shortly. But uh, that the um, um, circadian rhythm watch standing has been implemented surface wide. So you know, in other words, when I was way back when, I don't want to talk about the old guy, but you know, I would have you know, three or four section watches for duration of weeks, months while I was deployed, and you would have in those four days you would have one of the four nights where you'd you'd get basically six to seven uninterrupted hours of sleep. The other nights were all interrupted. So that means you're constantly, it's almost like being constantly jet lagged where you're, you're changing t- time zones and sleep times. And so the, the, the Navy has gone to a, a more steady circadian rhythm. So people are on watch the same time every day for long stretches and they have the same sleep times, which isn't a perfect, there is no perfect solution at sea because a ship's running 24 hours a day and you have emergencies and you have general cores and you have drills. So it, it, there's no perfect, but that's a much better solution for um, wellness and sleep and, and being able to focus. Hey, can I ask you, so this is about sleep, which is very, very important in cognitive health, which is also in the cognitive health field. The, um, the, the work that's been done the past say, 10, 15 years, I know there was one um, predominant study out of Stanford about 10 years ago on, and the conclusion, I think the, the guy that ran the lab was Clifford Nash, but I, I might have the name wrong, um, was that the brain, the human brain, is not wired to multitask. Um, there was a lot of talk that the millennials and then the subsequent generations, they're just much better at multitasking. So Stanford took a hard look at this, and the conclusion was, no, the human brain is not good for multitasking. We just published an article a few weeks ago um, by a Navy captain who was in the training side of the surface Navy, and the watchstanders, he's, he, was, he was saying, he or she, the, oh, he was saying that the watchstander has these three or four or five or even more chat rooms up on their screen while they're focusing on the tactical picture. And that this is, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work. They, they're too distracted. Their eyes, he or she, his eyes are flittering back and forth to the chat. They're going back. And this also contributes, according to Stanford and others, to a, a, uh, almost like being ADD, like the, 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 the person who puts themselves in this position day in and day out for hours has an, a very hard time concentrating for long periods. So I know I'm being a little long-winded here, but is that something you would agree with? Um, yes. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's easier and perhaps more effective to multitask when each of the little tasks uh, demand very little from you. So if you're playing a shooter game, it's just a movement of your thumbs and, and a sort of aim, aim and shoot. But if the task that's being demanded requires some thought, integrating multiple channels of information and thinking about how they relate to each other, that does not lend itself to small slices of time. And, uh, you know, I think most people, if they reflect, will realize that when the situation they're being presented with is cognitively demanding, what's really helpful is to have some um, time and space to sit down and think about it without interruption. And uh, that, um, it, that's when, when the brain does the, the best work for these more complicated tasks. You talk, and we've talked about tobacco a little bit, but let's let's address specifically what you what you say here. So on page fifty one, uh, you have fault number three, tobacco, and 
The first paragraph reads, because cigarette smoking causes weight loss and because quitting smoking causes weight gain, parentheses, 85% of quitters gain weight, end of parentheses, and because fatness is penalized in physical fitness testing, but tobacco use is not, a perverse and unconscionable incentive to begin and continue using tobacco has been institutionalized in the U.S. Armed Forces. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Obviously, you feel like the military hasn't done enough in smoking tobacco cessation. Well, it's more than that. You know, we talked earlier about nobody realized what would happen if you put distance runners in high G environments. Uh, There's been very little realization that the structure of the physical fitness scoring algorithms actually encourages tobacco use, which I think every leader in the Department of Defense would instantly say, we don't want to do that. But nevertheless, that's the structure that has been set up. And there there have been there were concerns about that expressed as far back as 2011, and it's surprising to me, unconscionable is the word I used, that it hasn't been remedied because it's very clear that those incentives, those perverse incentives are there. Yeah, I, I don't get it. It's almost like the smoking lobby is somehow working the gains on the Hill or something or in the Pentagon, right? Because the evidence, as you've said, is is there. You know, cognitive, physiological, health and comfort, lifestyle. Um, I, I don't I don't think we've done enough in terms of, of tobacco cessation. Well, w- one of my favorite, not favorite, but one of the most striking Navy stories about smoking is uh, the fire on the USS George Washington a few years ago, which cost $170 million to fix, and it was started by a discarded cigarette butt in a place that somebody should not have been smoking. And, you know, the carrier weighs a trillion times more than that cigarette butt, yet the cigarette butt was able to take that carrier out of action for three weeks. Well, and David Shahai here on Facebook Live says they now vape, which is even worse for you. Yes. Um, there's, um, well, I think cigarettes are worse than vaping, uh, but um, the issue with vaping is that it's, uh, to use an old term, a gateway drug, that um, it is uh, a path toward uh, use of traditional cigarettes, among, especially among the young, younger people. So uh, we're getting close to the end of our, our show here. Let's again pose the question to you as if you were the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So specifically, what is it we could do immediately to make the PRT more effective and, and less sort of as the noise it might be? Um, do we push the requirements down to lower levels? Is there, I mean, what, 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 what could you do immediately? Well, the first thing I do is fix the tobacco problem because we don't want to be killing people by encouraging them to smoke or uh, continue smoking. Uh, the second thing I would do is um, ask um, our, our experts to start matching physical fitness requirements to military occupations. And, uh, you know, when I talk to people about this, they say, man, that would be complicated to administer. Well, no, uh, it would be complicated to score uh, because, you know, one um, one occupation may favor upper body strength, may demand more of that than another one that demands, say, m- more endurance. And th- th- it's, it's not complicated to administer because the scoring can be all pushed into computer algorithms so that you do the same assessment. You still have people run. You still have people do push-ups and sit-ups, but the pass-fail criteria 
are different, and the computer just calculates that, and, and it's not complicated for the physical fitness monitors. So those would be uh, the two things uh, that I would start with. The, the sleep, um, as we discussed, that's difficult because that requires a sort of uh, community change, and, and those changes take longer. I think we should do it, but um, we aren't going to see the benefits as quickly as the other changes. So the article is in the June issue of Proceedings Magazine, Physical Fitness Programs Don't Fit Today's Fight. The author is Colonel John Soto, so the California Air National Guard. In fact, he is the state air surgeon of the California Air National Guard. Where, where are you based? Sacramento. In Sacramento. What, what kind of airplanes are they flying there? Is well, that Travis? Is that where you are? We fly desks at, oh, at headquarters. Yeah. Okay, so uh, before that, I was at uh, Moffett Field on the San Francisco Peninsula, okay. which fa- uh, flies um, rescue C-130s and rescue H-60s. Okay, very cool. Um, so you work the entire state in this capacity? Yes, we have five wings in the state. We have an intelligence wing. We have an um, un- unmanned aerial vehicle wing. We have a firefighting wing, which is a terrific mission. And we have an air defense wing. So, Colonel, thanks for, for being here in person. Oh, it's an honor. Uh, coming all the way across the country to be on the Proceedings Podcast. Fantastic effort. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.